Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 451 of the podcast. It's July 27th, 2022. My guest today, a returning guest, is Dr. Alan G. Robinson. His most recent book is called Practical Innovation in Government. But I hope if, if you don't work in government, please keep listening. We have a conversation that touches on continuous improvement in organizations of all types, uh, manufacturing, healthcare, and of course, uh, different levels of government. So uh, if you do work in government, here's an episode uh, for you. But I think as you'll hear, continuous improvement is continuous improvement and engaging people is engaging people. Leadership is leadership. So there's common themes here. Alan has uh, a lot of great stories and insights here I think you'll enjoy. So for links to his book and his website and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 451. Thanks for listening. Again, our guest today, uh, Dr. Alan G. Robinson. He specializes in uh, managing ideas, building high-performance organizations, creativity, innovation, quality, and uh, lean production. He, uh, If you don't know him, I hope you do, but if otherwise, a uh, good in- introduction to him today. He's a co-author of 10 books, or is that now 11 with the new one, Alan, to interrupt well, the intro? That's how you quick. count, but 13 is the number I would use right now. I can okay. elaborate if you need it. 13 books. Um, that's a number that's hard to keep updated in bios and the website. Um, many of those books have been translated into uh, more than 25 languages. Uh, Alan's on the faculty of the Eisenberg School of Management at the University of Massachusetts. He received his PhD in applied mathematics uh, from, uh, is it, gosh, is it the Whiting School or the Whiting School? I'm going to interrupt Whiting again. School. Yeah. Uh, at Johns Hopkins University, he has a BA and an MA in mathematics. Um, from the University of Cambridge. Um, he served on the Board of Examiners for the U.S. Malcolm Baldridge uh, National Quality Award, and uh, he's been on the Board of Examiners for the Shingo Prize for Excellence in Manufacturing. So uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more uh, about Alan, but first off, welcome, I should say, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, like I said, uh, Alan's a returning guest, um, episode 217, if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, back then, we talked about uh, one of his previous books, uh, a great book co-authored, um, as many of his are with Dean Schroeder, a book called The Idea-Driven Organization. I recommend that uh, really highly. Um, before that, uh, his best-selling book, Ideas Are Free, also co-authored with Dean Schroeder, was based on a global study of more than 150 organizations in 17 countries. I'm talking about how the best companies get large numbers of, of ideas from their frontline employees and the competitive advantages from that. Um, so his new book, and we're gonna spend a lot of our conversation on this available now, um, co-authored again with Dean Schroeder, is called Practical Innovation in Government, How Frontline Leaders Are Transforming Public Sector Organizations. Um, Alan was kind enough to um, send me a manuscript and was able to read and uh, endorse the book. So uh, a lot of great ideas there. Um, and you can learn more at alanrobinson.com. Uh, so uh, again, congratulations um, on, on the new book. And, you know, before we kind of dive into that a little bit, you know, I, I was hoping you could recap first off, like if people don't want to listen to a whole episode about, you know, innovation and government, um, there's something for everyone to learn, you know, uh, from your research uh, you know, as, as you've said previously, about 80% of the, 
of any organization's improvement potential lies in frontline ideas. Can tell tell us how that came to be discovered and and how that applies in so many different settings? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, we uh, we don't measure these things ourselves, but whenever we find companies or organizations, I should say, some government organ like the U.S. Navy and its research facilities measured it, we always jump on this measurement, uh, which is that they will take some, often it's cost savings or revenue generation or some measure of outcome. And they sometimes, luckily for the world, but bad for them because it's really non-value adding activity, uh, they taught up where the ideas come from. Uh, usually it's because uh, top leadership doesn't really believe that there's it's worth listening to the front line. So it's some middle managers making the case. Um, but it we have data from lots and lots of companies uh, and it always falls around 80, 80. There's a large chemical company I'm not allowed to name, but you're wearing its products right now. Uh, it's um, 85.15 is their figure. And the funny thing is that number also holds for innovation as well. The number, if you actually measure where innovative ideas come from, uh, it's usually between 70 or 80% start on the front lines in the very bottom of the organization. Obviously with innovation, they need management involvement and so forth. But if you just look at where they start, you get those similar uh, numbers. So it's just data. And uh, I do advise my consulting clients when they say, oh, you know, should we measure it? You know, you don't need to, I know what it's going to tell you. Uh, and why, why don't you just do it rather than spend uh, hours adding up numbers that just tell you how much an idea saved or generated. You don't need really need that information. So, but there are enough people who've measured it to give us the data we need. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know from uh, previous books that that data is very consistent in different countries, different industries. It really turns yeah. out to be true. Yeah, it's a absolutely. Uh, again, we don't control where it comes from, but we have, you know, government, manufacturing, service, uh, wherever people want to measure it. And luckily, I I, I say luckily, because um, uh, if there's a da there's data, um, American Airlines used to track this data. It takes an average of four hours of a manager's or professional staffer's time to put a number on how much an idea is saved or generated. So if when they're doing this, it's really chewing up a lot of their accounting capacity, uh, but they always end up with 80%. So I, so I say, please don't do it. And at least don't say, I told you to do it. Uh, right. And usually the remedy is just top management education because it's usually that's where the demand for that comes from. Mm -hmm. So it's just, we're lucky that number exists because nobody should be tracking it except maybe yeah. some researchers. Yeah. And then I wonder if there's a temptation. I mean, you know, people like to say, well, my organization is different. I wonder, you know, how much they say, well, okay, that might be true other places, but mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know if I believe it here. So that probably leads to them want to add it, wanting them to add it up. Themselves. Yeah. yeah. So we say the 80-20 principle is, is carefully worded. It says that 80% of your improvement potential lies in frontline ideas. So uh, probably the biggest current problem in this area is that people put up uh, a suggestion box or online suggestion box is much more popular, but, uh, and they say, oh, I've opened the channel to frontline ideas and I'm not seeing 80%. Well, you need leadership. You need, you don't just put a suggestion box on the wall. You need to train your people uh, doing a, 
tapping frontline ideas is is a is a long term pact with your employees for constant training and uh, and you know increasing their capacity to solve problems and to notice things, and then you have to uh, you know set up the systems to handle uh, I, I, these ideas. And and unfortunately, very few managers know how to do that. So they end up with a very weak channel and they think that's what they're tapping, but they're really not. Yeah. So I'm glad you emphasized that potential. I mean, you know, thinking back to one of your previous books, ideas are free, but they're often not valued. Mm -hmm. Or like you said, there's not structures in place. And, you know, I think sadly somebody might make, um, uh, you know, kind of a token attempt to gather ideas and then quickly, it's almost like they're trying to prove a point. Like, well, see, I told you so. People aren't speaking up about their ideas. And like, well, how hard did you try? Did you create psychological safety that made it okay for people to speak up? Like there's that that kind of that self-fulfilling prophecy, it seems, unfortunately. Yes, I've even been hired by unions to try to break down management so that they would listen to ideas from the union so that they wouldn't close factories thinking that it would be cheaper to go to a foreign country. Um, and it, it's not, actually. If, uh, you know, you, you can take very highly paid American workers, and if you use their brains, uh, you know, instead of just their brawn, then then you're more than competitive with people who are just basing their, their uh, competitiveness on low wages. I don't draw a distinction between the two anymore. I used to um, because I remember um, Dean, I was, I wish I'd been there, but he interviewed um, the inventor of the post-it note who said that was one big idea and 237 small ideas, Art Fry. Um, Because the truth is that an innovation, you know, sending a starship to Mars uh, involves some big ideas, some small ideas, the big ideas enable the small ideas, the small ideas feed the big ideas, and the overall thing is the innovation. So I don't think you can be very, if you just try to separate out, and I remember in early thinking, like Misaki Imai had his graph with continuous improvement versus innovation. I remember the University of Chicago study that tried to compare the two, but uh, the fact is, I think that any innovation has that's big has hundreds of small ideas in it, as well as big ideas. So it's so you kind of need all of that. So I, I guess what I'm now telling people is, if you want to be innovative, you need an ecosystem. You've got to be able to, as we wrote in the book, this recent book, uh, you've got to be able to do it all together. Because you know, if you leave out any part, the whole doesn't work very well. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah. But- no, no, that that I, I, that makes a lot of sense. The way 
the way yeah, you say you, that. And you, you uh, could even go with Toyota, which is known for at both ends of this. And and you you could say, well, the Prius or the mm-hmm. new uh, Mirai, the new Honda, uh, the new uh, hydrogen yeah. fuel car. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that wasn't just, oh, let's make a hydrogen fuel car. It's it's a uh, you know, it's a lot of things together. And if they didn't get all the small ideas, the thing wouldn't work. Right. And you could be a company that has very innovative products, but then if they're not tapping into their employees for continuous improvement, it seems like back to that word potential, there would be a lot of lost potential. Like even looking at uh, you know, a certain factory in Fremont, California that used to be run by Toyota and General Motors. It was very much um, aimed to be, um, you know, that 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 culture of continuous improvement. And uh, the new owners of that building, namely Tesla, he's not dancing around that, um, are, are said to not have that same sort of culture. That it's very uh, engineer driven, expert driven, um, and, mm. and it seems like again, like potential, That's lost funny. potential. Yeah. I went there and I took my daughter there on a tour, well, just a little choo-choo train tour. And I think my undergraduates at Eisenberg School would have picked up a lot wrong with that place on a speeding trolley. That Because even my daughter, who's a medical doctor, was going, what's going on here? This uh, place meaning once it was a Tesla factory? Once it was Tesla. It was okay. a yeah. area. I don't mean to slander anybody, man. It's probably changed since then. but. Uh, there was a most, you know, like most assembly lines in car factories, they 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 snake around. Uh, they said, we don't do that. We go up one side and then it stops. And then a robot that's named after a Marvel character picks it up and puts it on the line that goes down the other way. And then it stops and it's picked up and put on the line going back. Why don't you just put a and by the way, the robots break all the time. And why don't you just sort of carry the conveyor belt around and the thing can just and well, because Elon likes robots. And, and uh, you know, that, but the place is shutting down all the time because the robots don't work, but it's cool. <laughs> so it was uh, fascinating to see that. I bet. And I'll, I'll just, uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at a positive. Like you said, things maybe have changed. Um, you know, Elon uh, even he, he made his own comments publicly when he tried you know, to basically over-automate the, the Tesla Model 3 line, his famous comment yeah. of, like, yeah, humans are underrated. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, uh, and, and, was, and and there is, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, his background wasn't manufacturing, but it was sufficiently different and eccentric that I, I actually asked my tour guide, I said, have you had anybody in here with any sort of manufacturing lean expertise? And uh, the answer was, well, there was one guy a while ago or something. So it just wasn't of interest. <laughs> and, and, uh, that's a per- that's a perfect example because Tesla is incredibly trying to be incredibly innovative, mm-hmm. but if their cars don't work and they break down all the time and they can't produce them, then they are less innovative than they could be. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully they're starting to tap into that potential that I know would exist there in their workforce. I I, I know that one guy and he's no he's no longer there and uh, mm-hmm. we'll we'll save that for uh, an- another time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so let's get back to. Um, you know, continuous improvement. And, you know, so anyway, I brought up this idea that, you know, not every company is on board with um, embracing frontline employee ideas. I mean, I'm going to ask a generalized question, which is probably difficult to answer, but you've been at this a long time. So let's say looking from like 25 or 30 years ago to now, do you see more executives who are receptive, if not enthusiastic 
about engaging their frontline staff, or, and I'll say this with an MBA degree, have MBA programs still just uh, drummed in the people's heads that they're the experts, they're going to have all the answers when they're executives? Are we seeing change? Um, not as much as I'd like to see in that space. It's extraordinary. And I just think it's because the older paradigms are extremely strongly held. I think, I think I'm certainly starting to understand more why it hasn't changed. And I think a lot of people are seeing that, you know, I, um, in idea driven organization, we wrote a lot about this group at Stanford that studies power and how it affects people. And of course, that's what managers have is power. And if you go down that punch list of things that they discovered about people with power, not studying particularly improvement or innovation, you know, they don't listen to people. They think they know better. I mean, it's just like a litany of things <laughs> that mitigate against, you know, cognitively against being able to take in any information uh, from others. So yes, I think we're still very much stuck in the top-down sort of uh, mindset. And I think that we also are not educating our managers as well as we used to. Um, I'm, I, as you do, you know, I, I deal with a lot of management education and most of the places that uh, most of the large companies have completely hollowed. There's a few exceptions have hollowed out their management education. They send them to one day seminars or, but they're not developing them like the U S military does where they go to, you know, they make the next turn in the pipeline and they go to some school for colonels and then they go to a school for, you know, generals and <laughs> there's more leadership development and they're thinking about these things. Uh, the world has become so transactional that I think it's just a cost that often gets cut. So I'm fine. I think if we had that old world of where managers were, the people put resources into training their managers, I think this is what they would be trained in, but they're mm -hmm. not. So they, I, I, I would hope so. I mean, I think of, um, you know, I wonder how many MBA programs are, you know, they, they, they may be telling students about lean, but how deep they're getting into that, I don't know. And are they framing it as, you know, cost reduction projects or are they framing it as a culture and as a management system? Mm -hmm. I know there, you know, Steve Spear at MIT has yeah. opportunity to teach some of the MBA students there about that. Um, another Sloan professor, Zainab Tan, um, great book. I've interviewed her called The Good Job Strategy. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yeah, I know her. And uh, she was an early ideas are free sort of fan as well. Yeah. Which informs a lot of her work uh, in several of her sections or a lot about how you can get frontline people involved. And that's why yeah, you yeah. pay them more. Yeah. So I'm glad she emphasizes that, but you know, I, yeah. Um, so I can get an, an actual, some, there's some data here. Uh -huh. uh, oh, great. There is a group of uh, what's it called? The lean educators summit uh, mm -hmm. that happens every year. And I went to the very first one. And it went out on a national mailing list. They invited all higher education people who were interested in teaching lean to come. And do you know how many people came from the whole United States? Eight people. I was going to guess 12. <laughs> yeah. Well, 12 was, it was filled oh. out uh, some professors from the home institution. I'm not really counting those. Oh, okay. Uh, it's but, just the point uh, was, it just wasn't there. And I also remember being at a meeting at LEI with uh, some of the older lean people. I include myself in that. And, um, saying, you know, why is there just not an interest in lean? So it's actually not not just frontline ideas. It's mm -hmm. lean in general. Sure. sure. Struggled uh, because it's difficult. It requires people to think and it does require you to be open to ideas from others. I mean, that's a big part of it. Years ago when I, I mean, you know, I was, I worked, I wrote my first book with Shingo and I remember asking him an, an, a, sort of a stupid canned question. I was way younger. 
what's the secret sauce to the Toyota production system? Everybody wants to know, and you always get a different answer. But he said, it's we, for the first time in history, which wasn't quite true, but uh, we um, we managed to set off mass creativity. That's mm-hmm. what it's all about. Mm-hmm. The one who pointed me to these idea systems, you know, 40 years ago. He said, um, he said, that's really where the action is. You get the front line involved in constantly solving problems and making improvements. And so he kind of knew there wasn't the data we have now, but he was battling that 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And that book, um, I, I, I have this book and um, uh, I forgot that connection um, between you and Shigeo Shingo. So the, the book's title, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, Modern Approaches to Manufacturing Improvement, uh, the Shingo System. That's from... That was back in the that was like that was back in the Norman Bodak productivity press days, right? That's right. Um, so let's let's talk about and, and that that conference, by the way, it's um, the uh, Lean Educator Academic Network, something like that. The acronym for the yeah. group spells Lean. No. So one of the words is it's right. weird when you have an embedded network. Yeah, that network, makes. Sense. But yeah, and I wasn't playing. I I was there. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed meeting yeah. the other eight people in the United States who were interested in Lean. <laughs> But there were only eight. Yeah. So let's let's talk about one of um, the CEOs who I, I, I think is exemplar in terms of um, wanting employee ideas and, and, and valuing them and, and working toward that culture. Um, somebody who I've interviewed uh, a number of times, uh, Dr. Eric Dixon, who's the, the been the CEO at UMass Memorial Health, um, not far from you. Um, I, I still think it's a, an exception rather than the norm. Uh, mm-hmm. In healthcare, for him to have that belief and that passion, they recently reached a milestone that's worth mentioning of uh, 100,000 employee ideas that were implemented, mm-hmm. and I think they would be the first to um, acknowledge that—not collected, but actually implemented. Yeah. So, congratulations um, to all of them. And but you know, I want to acknowledge or, or hear you tell um, Alan a little bit of you know the story of uh, your interactions with Eric and with UMass? Uh, well, I've, I've known him a long time. He um, he called me, uh, I guess, right after, right before Idea Driven Organization came. No, maybe maybe it was 10 years ago. Uh, so before then, um, and he asked me, he wanted, he was COO at that point of UMass Memorial. Um, and he wanted to uh, have me talk to his 800 people at the uh, management at their management retreat. So I did that. And a lot of enthusiasm from him and people there. Um, And then about a year later, I had an email, just random email that said, this is Eric Dixon. And it was titled, uh, New CEO Wants Idea System. And he had just been made CEO that day. And he was writing me, he was headed off to Hawaii. And he said, I'm headed off to Hawaii. I want to talk as soon as I get back. But that was the first thing he wanted to do, as far as I could tell. I mean, it's only your first day on the job. You're, You're, you know, so... Uh, I am a teach the fish kind of person, and um, I, I sort of helped them. I trained their – they had a process improvement group. I can't remember the title of it, but there were sort of eight to ten professionals who were doing um, mostly process work, um, you know, laying out mapping processes and helping teams. Um, and Eric said, I want this frontline thing, and I want it sort of done right. So I trained them, and I uh, helped them set up their pilots um, and uh, so we got them started. And uh, of course, they, you know, the, the, to your original point, really, this is not rocket science. I mean, if you if you want this to happen in your organization, you can make it happen. It's not, 
at one level, it's not hard. At another level, you know, it is hard because you're trying to raise the level of thinking that goes on in your organization. And that that's that's tough. But anyway, Eric, uh, uh, I because I'm a teach to fish person and it's, I, if you're a professor like me, I have oh, I think I had to add it up. I'm probably close to 100,000 students now. Mm-hmm. And they go out there. I lose track of them after they leave. I, unless they contact me and say, here's how I'm doing. So you were the person who told me that they had 100,000 ideas. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I'm happy for them. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea what they were up to <laughs> since I left them. <laughs> but, well, um, uh, it sounds like you did a good job teaching them to fish. And, um, you know, that that executive drive to to not just take a stab at having a program. Like, yeah, we did some training and then eh, nothing happened. Like, the, it, it requires that energy and that recognition and, and, and everything that Eric does as a leader. Yes. So he's, he's a, yes, he's a wonderful leader and he's, he's, he models it well himself. Um, and he understood uh, the, he had, he had a few years to think about this as COO and he understood, uh, you know, and there's, there's other organizations that have done this in the healthcare space, as you know, um, but uh, and they've they've all had very special leaders and who were patient and thought in systems terms and were aware they'd meet resistance. Um, and uh, it's it's fascinating. I'm watching one of my kids go through. She's just finishing up her residency now. And the uh, the this sort of modern but there's modern side to medicine and then there's an incredibly archaic side. You yeah, know, it's yeah. basically a medieval apprentice system with hazing. Mm, unfortunately. <laughs> that's, that's what yeah. creates your doctors. Yeah. And so now you come in and say, now we're going to try to be an improvement culture. Well, that's that's a tough shift. Yeah. And, you know, Eric's also you know mentored by uh, a former Toyota person from uh, Georgetown. And, and like you said, they have this internal team. Some mm-hmm. other great people who've come in from industry, some people who come from healthcare. Um, so Eric would be the first to say he doesn't do it alone, but my gosh, he sets the tone, yes, and the direction, absolutely. and the expectation. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. you know, on on his blog, uh, which which he maintains as a CEO, he um, will publicly recognize people and celebrate the improvements. And I think that's one of the executive habits that you know a lot of people might say, like, "Well, I, why should, I, I'm I'm too busy. I'm going to delegate. I have an improvement person." But boy, when it comes from the CEO, even if someone. I think a lot of times I can't speak for Eric's organization. An executive might have a process improvement person kind of feeding them, like, here's what we'd like you to highlight. But then the fact that they, you know, send it out um, themselves carries a lot of weight. Yeah. No, he was a clear believer. I, I just go back to first day on the job. That's what he said his biggest priority was. And, uh, you know, we ran with that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, that, that's what you need. You need to be very dedicated and visionary. To do this, but that being said, the steps you need to take are, I think, quite linear. Once you're past and become a leader of Eric's mold, like you said, it's uh, it's not rocket science, or we could say it's not brain surgery, uh, or it doesn't require degrees in applied mathematics. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the same um, with same with lean as a whole. I would say it's not terribly complicated. It is systems thinking, mm-hmm. uh, which is very hard to. You know, thinking fast and slow just made that point wonderfully. It's something yeah. we do not like to do as humans. Yeah. But, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's good that, you know, some people are uh, leading that charge and that they're, they're asking you or, uh, or others for help. So, you know, let, let's, I'd love to shift the conversation now to, you know, different levels of government. Um, 
you know, maybe, a, a, you know, a, a part of society or, you know, part of societies that might not have a reputation for innovation or, you know, kind of being on the mm-hmm. forward edge of different management practices. But um, now that I've badmouthed government, and I didn't really need to do that, but um, the new book, again, is Practical Innovation in Government, How Frontline Leaders Are Transforming Public Sector organizations. So from, you know, things that Alan has shared with us so far, um, you know, I think, you know, the, the words and the, the title and the subtitle there aren't surprising. Um, so, you know, I'm curious, first off, like origin story for this book of all the things you could research or look at or write about why this book, why now, why, you know, uh, highlighting government? Well, as you know, I, I, it's been a while since I've actually looked at it, but uh, I think the first line in the book is actually, we did not intend to write this book. Um, and I'm, I'm actually don't consider myself a writer. I do the writer writing to support my habit, which is, um, going out and investigating stuff. I really enjoy that. Um, but, uh, what happened was after idea driven organization came out, we started to get a marked increase, both Dean Schroeder and I in, uh, interest, uh, in how to do this in government. And we had a discussion, um, uh, by an earlier version of zoom uh, and said, you know, we've done a lot of work in government. I've, I've done a lot of work in government. I mean, not, not just in the United States. Um, and I, we've always left these organizations feeling it, it never stuck. You know, uh, they, we'd get some enthusiastic leadership team and training. They do things for a few months and then it would die off and somebody would get transferred. And, uh, so we sort of realized there was a moment when we said, you know, we need to really take this for what it stopped coming in as private sector experts saying, all you got to do is be like business and you'll be fine. Um, We have to study government as it is, go in, look at what's actually going on. Uh, John Cotter says this beautifully, you know, his method of research, the same as mine, which is that you, you take a phenomenon and you look at some high performers, you look at some medium performers and you look at some low performers and you see what the differences are and you write about what's actionable in all that, you know, Um, and that's all we did. We, we started looking out uh, for examples of government organizations that were good at continuous improvement. Uh, you know, sometimes people think of, you know, Navy SEALs. You know, you would never say they're, they're used with reverence. You know, they step into the private sector and everybody wants to pay them all kinds of money for motivational speeches. And we're looking up to government there, you know. So there are some organizations. This coincided with um, a sort of emerging movement that we we didn't trigger, but we were there from the inception. Um, and that was that there were a, a number of government uh, organizations that had kind of figured out how to do continuous improvement in their context. So we had our high performers. We had plenty of medium and low performers. And we sort of, as we were writing the book, we realized that many of the lowest performers that we were looking at, they only lasted for you know, the, their continuous improvement groups would last for nine months, a year. Often we were tra- tracking down people after they'd uh, been sort of laid off or sent back to their main, uh, so uh, to their main job, so to speak. But we just decided we were going to study this phenomenon from scratch. And we were really surprised by what we discovered. Um, it was, you know, that the government, what works in government uh, is not what the private sector is telling them to do. We have had too many people coming in from, uh, I won't name the companies, but saying, you know, I know how to do this. 
and they have no idea how government works. Government managers face a whole different world. It's like, I think this is, we were talking about healthcare earlier. This is very akin to what happened in healthcare mm-hmm. early on. We had a lot of people coming in from the auto industry saying, here's how you should run your hospitals. Um, we did a national survey of 900 doctors a few years ago, and they hated lean with a passion. Mm-hmm. And the comments in mm-hmm. the uh, comment section all sort of said, you know, we we deal with people. They have complex things. We you can't you can't uh, crunch them into ten minute slots and get cycle right, times right. and stuff like that. That doesn't tack right, time. Right, makes no right, sense right. in our context. And um, and I think there mm-hmm. was a lot of that going on in government too. And so once you actually look at well, what separated the top uh, performers from the bottom performers? It came back to what I'd been studying all along. It wasn't that we went in. Look, you 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 pointed out right rightly that the title of our book mentions frontline ideas and frontline leaders, right. and I've been doing that for forty years. Yeah. Oddly yeah. enough, when we took a completely blank slate look at government, said what's the difference between high performance and low performance and continuous improvement? It turned out to be involvement of frontline people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you do it properly in a government context, it really works. It's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I remember, um, and gosh, I'd have to think, let, let me look real quick what year it was. Um, do, do you know uh, the name Mike George? He's real well-known yeah. for Lean Six Sigma. Yep. Mm-hmm. I combining, those, you know. One uh, of his books is behind me over my shoulder. Here. Yeah. And um, I interviewed him back in 2011 because he he was sort of pushing and, and like, you know, to me, any of this should be nonpartisan. Like, we're talking about government. We're not talking about politics. Mm-hmm. But um, he was really pushing Lean Six Sigma. Now he was trying to get candidates running for office at, let's say, for Congress um, to sign this pledge that they were going to support mm-hmm. Lean Six Sigma. And you know, it, it, what what made me think of that was the difference between asking political leaders versus career government employees yeah. to be focusing on improvement. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do you, do you do you think trying to influence or educate elected leaders is um, maybe the wrong place to focus? It's a leading yeah, question. Well, sorry. One of yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Um, you know, there is one place where I've seen politicians write it into their charter, and that was New Brunswick, um, where In it's Canada into campaign platforms that we're going to use Six Sigma. But you're right, it doesn't. Um, so, yeah, so this is a fundamentally nonpartisan thing. Um, we had in our study, we had almost 50-50 Republican administrations in cities, town, states, uh, and Democrats. Um, you know, you pick the size of government, you pick what you want government to do, and that's where our book takes over. We'll tell you how to do it, you know, more efficiently and how to put improvement mechanisms on, on, uh, on top of that. But the key thing, one of the key things we found was in this in the high performers that had to sustain for a few years. You don't, you can't really get anything started unless it lasts for a few years. Um, it had to survive changes in political leadership. So um, we first learned this in a tiny little town in Sweden called Boruas. Um, and this town manager, it's probably you know fifty thousand people. And uh, this town manager said to us, you know, the key thing is you got to not have it identified with the political party. You got to get it into the way we you know, do our work. And then he gave us this lecture. We quote him in our book. He said, you know, in government, uh, one of the issues is that the nature of leadership is very different. The people on the top, that is the political class, 
are usually less well-informed about how their organizations run than the people who work in them. And in business, that's exactly the opposite. So the key, one of our early sort of ahas was to start looking for how these leaders, and we have some examples in the book of some who didn't embed, like Tony Blair, for example, did Deliverology. He had it in his own office and it was Blair's Deliverology. And guess what happened when he left office? The first thing they did was swept it out. But if you sort of put it into, you know, the office of management and budget or the, some, some other place where it becomes part of the machinery of government. And we, we didn't write this in the book, but that Borowas example, what they did was they embedded the continuous improvement in the machinery of government. So there was like a door with finance on it and accounting and then continuous improvement, you know, just along the corridor. And uh, when the new political leadership came in, they had three days of orientation as to how government works. So they got oriented how here's how the finances work, here's how they kind of here's how this continuous improvement work. And they just went, oh, cool. And it, uh, you know, on it went. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you have to sort of untag it from the partisan side, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because the next person's going to change it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think one example of that, because healthcare in Canada is public sector, mm-hmm. uh, the province of Saskatchewan, maybe about 10 years ago, had um, you know, the party in power had this really high profile lean healthcare initiative that became controversial in many ways. Um, you know, there's uh, maybe, you know, employee, if not public resentment of bringing in, uh, there's sensitivity to bringing in Americans. I know that from working in Canada. There was sensitivity to uh, the, the large expense of flying in people from Japan. Mm-hmm. And it became a highly partisan issue. It became a campaign issue where the party out of power, you know, looks for a wedge issue. And this this really became, you, you'd think this would all be very obscure yeah. within the inner machinery of, um, of healthcare. But um, yeah, I, I thought it was sad that it became you know, partisan yeah. and, um, and, and then, you know, people dig in their heels. And even if they were to say, well, you could see some good results, they, they won't accept it. They're just going to criticize it no matter what. And the other party, it's probably not healthier to paper over any problems and say, everything here is great. Don't look behind the lean curtain, if you will. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate your point about you see leaders from both parties. Um, uh, Newt Gingrich was heavily aligned with Mike George in that 2011, 2012, let's mm-hmm. push lean six Sigma campaign. Newt Gingrich for um, all of his faults where there's a long list, but he, he was, uh, still in love with W Edwards Deming yeah. in his philosophy and, uh, and, and all. And then you have like the state of Washington lean has survived. Mm-hmm. I forget if they're highlighted in your book, but that survived. Mm-hmm. From one Democratic governor to the replacement, which is also a Democrat. I think that's not Jay. Actually, Inslee. gone through three three Great. governors. Oh, better, better yet. Yeah, yeah. And then there are undoubtedly, um, uh, well, I, I, I you know, uh, I think of well, the city of Frisco, Texas. A lot of these city positions are probably nonpartisan, but um, you know, it's a suburb. You know, that may be quote unquote conservative leadership. Um, they've really been embracing lean in different parts of city government there. They partnered with Toyota. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked here from asking you questions. But you know, one of the positive examples was Frisco partnering up with Toyota mm-hmm. to put together an amazing mass vaccination clinic, collaborating mm, and working together that. with them. That would be maybe for your next research, you yeah, can go, yeah, yeah. Uh, go look at that. But um, 
you know, I'm sure there are um, states or other areas where it's Republican or conservative government because that uh, leaders because that's typically where the quote unquote run government like a business seems to come from is from the Republican mm-hmm. Party. But that question of like run it, run it like a business, which business? <laughs> yeah, I well, I I just think you know from what I've seen now. And I'm still, you know, you're actually my first podcast on this. Uh, I haven't really talked to anybody about the book other than just our our brutal editor. Um, but, you know, I'm just sort of realizing that uh, we looked to the, we never said this is a, there was just this longstanding assumption that the private sector knows best. We just need to hire all these people from all these exotic companies and they'll come in and tell us how to do it. And actually, it's quite a different context. I mean, uh, you know, even people from Toyota are not used to dealing with diverse, you know, complex missions and diverse sets of stakeholders and transparency on all their expend, you know, and changes in leadership and all this stuff. And it's the reality. And if you want to, you know, change things, you got to deal with the uh, reality. So it's, you know, I, I was, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, but, you know, there's countless examples of famous business leaders who go into government and get killed because they don't understand how to build coalitions and, you know, the politics of situations they're used to just issuing orders, which is, is a much simpler world. So uh, I remember good. I remember in the good to great in the social sector, Jim Collins wrote that actually some of the best leaders we have are in government. They're just dealing with an order of magnitude, more complex problems, you know? So when you say, you know, or not you, I'm not saying you, but when people say, Oh, just hire these efficiency experts from private industry, it's probably a bad move. Uh, we need to develop a discipline, and that's why we wrote this book. Uh, we we need to develop a discipline of how you do this in the government setting. How do you think about it? Yeah. So where um, do you find the most adoption of um, practical innovation or idea systems or lean, like at the local or school board level, county, state? federal agencies. We found it at all levels, actually. And, um, you know, one of our uh, early examples, and we have sort of 10 or 15 pages in the book about this, was was the city of Denver. Um, And we kind of watched, you know, Michael Hancock, the mayor there, um, you know, he campaigned. He he had been in city council for, I think he told us, nine years, 10 years, 11 years before he became mayor. So he'd seen a lot of the problems. He'd seen a lot of people come in and try to force change in with private sector methods. And, you know, he's, he campaigned on continuous improvement. That was one of his platforms. And he said in a sort of frank moment with us, he said, I, I think this is going to be, you know, my biggest legacy item to the city is creating a culture across the whole city. Um, and of course, as you get, as you get further away from, uh, the front lines, you now are dealing with different set of issues because as we wrote in the book, you have to kind of puncture down layers of management and get things to happen on the front lines for this type of continuous improvement that you can't yourself sort of see see directly. So uh, it, it was small units um, just with uh, isolated managers. Those were the, some of the first ones we met that made these incredible transformative, innovative things happen um, and all the way up to entire cities and states. Um, just different styles. So the book sort of divides into two parts. You know, what do you do if you're a, running an entire large city or a state? And what do you do if you're a local frontline leader or middle manager? They're just different orders of problem. They're still pulling the same levers, but just in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, 
my understanding in Frisco, Texas, you know, I got invited in to visit, like it started in the library mm -hmm. um, with the director. Uh, they, they had business challenges. Like Frisco is an incredibly high growth suburb population and demand for the library grows much faster than the tax base. There's kind of right. a lag yeah. there. Uh -huh. And um, they, 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 they had this challenge of like, well, we have too many books that are out of stock or, you know, uh, not available for people to come in. Um, we can't buy more books. We can't build a bigger building yet. They had to improve the flow mm -hmm. of like their big challenge mainly was like from when that book gets dropped off, get it on the shelf for somebody else to check out as soon as possible. Instead of assuming it's got to be days. Yeah. It, you know, could happen um, almost immediately, like literally smaller carts, you know, instead of mm -hmm. accumulating a huge batch of books to go reshelf, they used smaller carts, which were also safer ergonomically for oh, people to push cool. on the carpeted um, library. So, uh, you know, uh, to what you made me think of that is that that library director was certainly empowered, like they brought in a consultant who was a library improvement expert, yeah. like somebody who had used lean in particular. Um, and then that caught the attention of others within government up to like at least the city manager um, to then start spreading this to other directions. And the people from the library started becoming kind of internal change yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, spread champions. That's, that's how it happened in a number of states we saw. Just one department sort of got it it's, it, you know, it comes back, I guess Toyota uses this as strategy, the model line approach, you know, you kind of create one thing and then everybody can go and get inspired by that. And that's one approach to doing it. Uh, and it's not the approach that, for example, Michael Hancock took, he, he tried to bring everybody along. Yeah. You know, he talked about, it's a little bit of a loaded term, but he talked about the coalition of the willing, which means he sort of started with people who he could say would really want to do this. And then he went to the you know early adopters to the early majority, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, you know, there are different approaches you can take, but that model, that organic model line one is, is one you certainly see a lot. Yeah. 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 There's, there's different ways of introducing and, and spreading this. Um, you know, I think of maybe a, at the federal level and correct me or add to this um, the, the EPA, has mm -hmm. had um, a, a, a lean program. You can find lean pages about lean on the EPA website. Um, yeah. And my understanding is that they're using those ideas internally. Um, think of uh, the military. I mean, I've seen speakers at conferences from different branches of the military. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, thinking that of that. Was, uh, you know, and the VA was another, uh, mm -hmm. they had it in their charter. They had a very proactive uh, leader. You know, and so, so I guess it depends on your entry point, you know, you know, who are you and what are you trying to hold sway over here as to sort of how you proceed to do it. And those were the things we had to kind of figure out. And we had to opportunistically go to the, you know, high performers we could find because they're because of you mentioned Results Washington and the Lean Conference out there. That's a national conference. Now there's now a Canadian Lean Government Summit. Um so the, you know these ideas are are um, are spreading, and there's stuff going on in other countries too that's just mind-blowingly good, and it will gel. It's sort of in our academic language, it's pre-paradigmic. You know, people think it's like the early days of quality. Or, you know, should you use inspectors or should you process better? You know, now we're kind of figuring it out. And now we say inspection is bad, process is good. <laughs> you know, it, we have to get there with, with uh, 
with government too. There's a lot that still has to be figured out for sure. Yeah. And, and I'll apologize to the audience because usually about 30% of my listeners are from outside the United States. And yeah. um, so I apologize for having my, my local bias here, but um, whether it's the U.S. Or, or, or other countries, can you share? Like, I know there's there's a lot of data, there's a lot of results mm-hmm. that you've shared in the book. Is there a key, you know, kind of quantitative example of the impact of practical innovation or idea systems that 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 first comes to mind for you? Well, ooh, that's interesting. Um, usually, and 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 that's a great question. Um, it depends on, and this is the way you embed yourself into a government setting so you don't get fired with the next change of administration, is you have to be trying to fulfill the strategic goals of the leadership. And if that's your function, they will keep you around as long as you have a track record of doing that. So those strategic goals have changed for you know a lot of organizations. We wrote in, uh, in the book about how, you know, in the state of Washington, uh, the oyster industry, uh, we have actually a series of articles about this too, but the, in the Puget Sound, the oyster industry was failing due to uh, pollution. And they had no, uh, they had tried and tried and tried to solve this uh, problem. And then Results Washington was called in and it applied some lean. Uh, and now the oyster industry is safe again. And it's a huge part of the you know, economy. And they had to literally track down uh, individual septic tanks that were leaking in the, because everything in Washington, the, the difficulty in Washington is it, it rains all the time. So everything's constantly flushed into the bay. So you, you know, if I'm, I'm sitting on top of a hill right now, but if I was in Washington, my septic stuff would go into the bay and they have dog poop and geese poop and, you know, dairy farms and all kinds. They had to track it all down and figure it out. And very, very 27 state agencies and like five federal agencies and four native American tribes, and that's that's a typical government problem. And <laughs> they figured it out. Um, so, uh, yes, we've had uh, Mind Lab in uh, Denmark has become a model for uh, that's a policy setting institute. When we when often when we put laws into effect, we have no idea of their consequences. And uh, they decided to have it have a, a institute that would study the impact of laws before they were made. <laughs> and so they could save a lot of money on uh, laws that were could be implemented for much more much much less expensively than people sitting in Washington would know without with the information they had you know so um, there's highways England which uh, is they have we don't even have them here they have smart highways over there they have uh, their 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 uh, I forget the exact numbers but their high national highway system was rated for I will invent the number 10 million vehicles a day and they're now at like 40 million vehicles a day infrastructure and they've been installing what's called smart highways they've eliminated the shoulders to the roads and if you break down you pull over and a system of cameras will immediately shut down the road uh, behind you and traffic will divert and so they can use the shoulders dynamically and time there is no shoulder until somebody stops and within 30 seconds everything's flowing again stuff like that they can reduce speed limits if there's bottlenecks so you they're pushing way more traffic through and that was a classic, uh, I would say, implement- implementation of lean, but it had a twist in it. Uh, one of the other sort of high-level findings of our book is the private sector has a lot to learn from the public sector. There's stuff going on in the public sector and continuous improvement that the private sector is way behind on. And one of them is Highways England 
said, we have all these suppliers and wouldn't it be cool if they all exchanged ideas and improvements between each other? And so we became one giant learning organization and they figured out how to incentivize one contractor to tell another contractor of an improvement that that contractor could use because they had a system of cross payments and sharing profits and cost savings. And so all the contractors are phoning each other saying, you know, if you paint it this way, it saves 12 hours. And they were calling their direct competitors with this stuff, you know, and giving them improvement ideas, which would, you know, that's not antitrust. That's something, but it's not antitrust. <laughs> you know, you're helping your competitors. So there's, there was just a, a lot of, but it always depended on the context of, and this is why, you know, business is kind of could be cynically said it's all about money, you know, but in government, they have so many different things they have to, uh, you know, sometimes people want better library books. Sometimes people want, you know, more park areas and sometimes people worried about the state of the roads. And, yeah. you know, they have to just deliver and set those continuous improvement systems for what the needs are. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I love how there are examples and even just looking to the book description they're about things like better service to the public, to citizens, mm -hmm. constituents. Um, the one example cited here, um, Denver Department of Excise and Licenses reduced wait times from 100 minutes to seven minutes. Like that's the kind of flow improvement that you would expect well, from it was, Lean. It was, yeah, right. it was, it was um, yeah, 100 minutes, maximum wait times of eight hours because these were for commercial licenses for liquor stores and security guards and stuff. So it was not driver's license. But they reduced it from average of 100 minutes, maximum of um, of eight hours, down to literally nothing, seven minutes first, and then six months later, literally nothing. And that was despite a doubling in the volume of licenses because the economy is booming uh, and they never asked for any additional personnel. So when you look at that from the outside, back to one of your points in the beginning, is that innovation or, or what? You know, it was it was all done through step by step ideas. But the outcome is totally different than what it was before. And, and Denver licensing actually went on to head that because it was deemed the showcase department, the most innovative department to head uh, Denver's marijuana. It was the first city to legalize recreational marijuana. And they had to figure all that out and license it. And uh, they did that in addition to having no lines and <laughs> the same personnel. <laughs> I mean, it's mm -hmm. that's Navy yeah. SEAL standard of, of, of excellence. Yeah. And there's just a lot of pockets of that around. Mm -hmm. We could all but, learn. From. I mean, it comes back to you know your, your point of, well, you know, people might say, well, businesses are only focused on money. I, I think we could say the best businesses focus on more than yes. just the bottom line. Again, there's the difference between the cost cutters and the improvers, right? Where we'd say, well, you know, better financial performance would be a result of providing better customer service and better quality, mm -hmm. uh, better safety. Um, things like that. So I could see if a cost cutter was running the library, they mm -hmm. would they would probably be tempted to say, well, let's let's save money by slashing the budget for books. And then maybe the public gets fed up and says, I wish I could use the library, but they never have books. So I'll just go buy a used book somewhere. And then they yeah. get out of the library habit. And then well, they might say, well, why, why is no one coming to the library anymore? And then they have to cut costs again. Right. Yeah. And then running it like a business, um, a mistake we came across a lot was just subcontracting it out and then giving your subcontractors incentives just to cut, cut, cut uh, in, yeah. without perhaps intending to. So that's why we said very often we and we didn't really spell this out too much in the book that when you treat government too much like a business, you just create a different set of problems. And yeah. they're often much worse, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask. Um, 
two, two other questions about, well, one question about the title of the book, the phrase practical innovation. Did you, like, how, how did you center in on, on, on that phrase? Did, did, did you get better response from people that you were working with or? Eric, you, Eric yeah, Kohler, yeah. our publisher, um, yeah. has a process that it uses for titles. Okay. And it's a, it's a Qualtrics survey that they send out. And we did like four or five rounds of them. We had to send them out to like 3000 of our contacts. And I believe you were one of them. Being, um, okay. I don't know if you <laughs> yeah. responded or not. I said it was not. Probably did. Yeah. yeah. If they used your name, I probably did. Yeah. Uh, appreciate <laughs> that. Um, and uh, they'd say, we know we have the following sort of eight, 10 titles, which do you prefer? And then uh, they had subtitles as well, and uh, they would mix and match and note trends. Um, we we noticed we had a, I forget the name of the actual title we had, but that you can slice and dice this data in beautiful ways. And one one point we found there was a, was it a 70% response rate? Everybody loved this title, but there were 30% who just you know said no. So then you started slicing and it was the people in government <laughs> who hated it. Yeah. So I said, well, well, I think our audience, you know, <laughs> the primary audience is probably government people. So let's, let's, you know, take that message. And I think the message of the title said, you know, how you can be more like a business or something. That was a, that, that assumption took us two years to break. Wow. Yeah. Before we yeah. were able to say, let's just look at government for what it is, as it is, and see what works and what doesn't there. Stop coming in from an outside perspective. I mean, I've been in the private sector as you have for you know, decades, and I've seen some incredibly good stuff. And it was a temptation to say, oh, just do that in government. But Collins put his finger on that years ago when he said, you know, people in business are used to are used to much more top-down, people follow orders, they have much more control over resources and actions. And so you're operating in this kind of haze in government where you've got to make coalitions happen and get stakeholders involved. And that requires a lot more leadership than mm. we have. Absolutely. Yeah. Re re real leadership instead of falling back on power and hierarchy and command and mm -hmm. control. Yeah. Yes. And if you try to do that in government, it just doesn't work. You last a few years and then you're thrown out and everybody says the person didn't really change much. Yeah. So um, when it seems like one dynamic with government is, um, you know, budgets and budgeting cycles and, you know, people in private sector and nonprofit healthcare, if you ask them, what do you need to improve? Like, to me, it's always the mores, right? I need more people. I need more space. I need more money. Does practical innovation help governments get past that trap of saying like, well, hey, we, there's, there's a lot we could do, but we don't have the budget, like finding ways to actually improve within existing budget. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think I think that's actually the at the very heart of it because this what what we found was that this kind of management driven improvement, meaning where managers make most of the improvement calls, which is the most prevalent form in business, uh, when people came in and tried to do that in government, it didn't work. So they went to frontline improvement, and that consists of, in the case of say Denver licensing, which you just brought up, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small ideas, which cost almost nothing to implement. You know. Um, and, uh, and so it's this, I, I think, uh, we have a, we have an entire chapter on the book about why managers miss these. They're largely invisible. They're off the radar screen to anybody who's not doing the work. So, you know, to, to, to give you, uh, one example, um, we, we talked, one of our, one of the ideas we, we wrote out from Denver licensing was they have, um, uh, people have to do the criminal background checks to get licenses to be security guards and stuff and teachers. 
and they uh, they this they had a terminal in the in the lobby where you could do it yourself. But it was so confusing that almost everybody would get up and approach the desk, and, and a licensing <laughs> technician would have to come out yeah. and help them. And now nobody outside of the waiting lines or the technicians really knew about that problem. But and somebody said, why don't we just write a clear set of instructions so that people can, you know, with screenshots, people can do it themselves. And you take that idea, it saved um, 35 interruptions uh, per day, five minutes each. You do the math, it works out to something like 780 hours a year that when you just clean up this manual, takes 780 hours, which is like, you know, uh, 20 weeks full time for somebody. So, and then you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those, but each one is deceptively small. You say, oh, I don't really have, you know, it's not really important. We need to think about the big stuff. But when you get hundreds of things like that, pretty soon you're running a totally different department. And and so there isn't really, there, were, there weren't any budget items. Uh, I'm trying to think, going back to Denver licensing, I can't name anything that cost them money of any kind. It was all just process improvements um, that they did. And so there was just like, but I mean, maybe you could say the paper for printing the clear instructions, but it was all at that level. Yeah, just and minimal. Is, yeah. You know, I think to the cumulative impact of all these invisible ideas, and that's the 80-20 principle, is just enormous. And it's it requires managers to be educated so they know that, like Eric Dixon, knows that's where the real action is in his organization for, yeah. for moving it forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a very... Um, I, I recognize that dynamic of people, frontline staff or leaders kind of discounting like, well, that idea is not worth anything. And then, but when you see hundreds or thousands of ideas and suddenly like, okay, wow, now that's making a cumulative difference. And, and that's the difference between like, I think maybe the, the habit of certain types of businesses that would demand ROI analysis before any idea was improved. That seems like a kiss of death for any sort of idea program or innovation. One of my, I don't know if you can see over my shoulder, but I use the shoebox method of research. I sort of uh, pick a topic and I, that I'm interested in and I write little notes and tear stuff out and put it in. And I also do it on the computer, but um, one of my shoeboxes for a long time was, and I have, I have yet to write this article was about cost benefit analysis, um, which is astonishingly poor tool for what it's set up to do. And People, Amartya Sen, probably the most famous living economist, wrote an article, Why Cost-Benefit Analysis is Stupid. That's the title. <laughs> I'm going to look that up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and uh, I remember I worked a lot in England, and it was kind of a joke, but um, I remember the head of a large insurance company that I was working for. He was asking for ROI on all the ideas, and people were saying, we're just, it's just creating a lot of work for us. Um, and uh, so I had to go into this man, and he actually said, I have a first in physics from Cambridge, um, and I am uh, always been told he was. Uh, I went to London Business School. Always been told that uh, you know you manage businesses by the numbers. You got to help me out with this. And I was feeling frivolous. I have a tendency to be inappropriate when I handle when I deal with pompous <laughs> people. I said I can give you the half hour explanation or the thirty second explanation. And uh, he said, Well, okay, I'll try the thirty second explanation. And I said. Cost-benefit analysis was invented by the French. <laughs> That's and he kind of lent for <laughs> He had the worsted suit on and everything. And I, 
And he said, I think I'm going to need more than that. But it's actually, you go back to the original, have you ever had a chance to read the original article proposing cost-benefit analysis? It's an actual point in time where the day before it didn't exist. Um, and it was written by a French uh, industrial engineer. And when you get, you see, he sort of says, here's what you should do, but watch out for the following things. This technique is only useful for the simplest of decisions where you only have one or two variables. Don't try to do it after that. It's all hand-waving. Uh, my worry is that because it's the first quantitative technique, this was in 1841 before. The oh, my Civil gosh. War. Wow. My worry is because it reduces it to one number, managers will take this too seriously. Then I have some studies somewhere in here. Uh, I'm dying to write this article when I get time, but I have another one I'm even more excited about. Uh, but there was another one, that, another article on cost-benefit analysis that came out that said it's wrong. What is it? How did it work? 80%? No. Uh, the average cost-benefit analysis is off by 80%, and it's frequently off by more than 100%, meaning that, that, that was the, they did some studies of how, because it, it's, it's meant to predict something. What it's meant to tell you is you change something, this is how your bottom line is going to change. So you can actually test it if you have enough time and energy. Um, so it's off plus or minus 80%. And who, if I propose that to you now, you'd say, I don't have time for a tool like that. That's ridiculous. But we use it. And then it's frequently off by more than 100%, meaning <laughs> that it's telling you to do something you shouldn't or telling you not to yeah, do something yeah. you should. That's just crazy. It, it, yeah. And, then, and there's so many cases where, I mean, at some point in my career, I think I, I came up with this notion that, well, if if an executive wants to do something and there's not a, a good cost-benefit analysis, they'll call it a strategic initiative. Yes. Or, you know, the, how many how many times are people just saying, uh, give me the cost-benefit analysis that proves this is a good idea? Like, oh, That's is right. that, that sounds like a waste of time. To your point, that is exactly how I break leaders out of the cost-benefit. I say, you know, this isn't really, let's not measure... Let's, you know, what are your strategic goals here? If you if you were running a top restaurant in a big city, would you be saying we want cost savings ideas and ROI on every? No, you're you understand that if uh, it is a strategic measure, you know, if you have great service and great culture and good food, the money will take care of itself. So you look at the drivers, um, and so I, you're absolutely right. That's that's the flip. And so I often find myself I'm working in some very financially driven organizations right now. And I just kind of say, well, what's your strategy? You know, and they say, oh, well, we're going to go, you know, buy these this land in Florida. And okay, well, let's do that. Well, and then the money will fall. <laughs> but mm -hmm. yeah. if you're questioning people about the dollars all the way along, it's a recipe for, you know, it's, it's yeah. actually, yeah, completely valueless. I, I, I very much look forward to you writing that article. So please let me know <laughs> um, when, when that article's out. Um, as, as we wrap up here, it's just a couple, maybe final questions. So I, th I think we've known and we've seen from experience and reports and research, or what have you, that that people in any country can do continuous improvement. That it's about the leadership and the organization, mm -hmm. and culture. We know the French can do it. Uh, we know people in, in in any country can do it. But we also know not every company in Japan is a Toyota culture. Oh yeah, not really bad Japanese companies. Yeah, so it. There's always that danger in generalizing. But now back to when it comes to government, did you find, like, if people would expect Japanese government to embrace some of these ideas, do you have any evidence of that or any examples of government in Japan? No, government is yeah, uh, notoriously inefficient in Japan. But I did work for the Singaporean government for a number of years. 
they, you know, they, they, they have a lot of stuff, right? I mean, they're that, that country. And I hate to say this as an American is probably 15 years ahead of where we are. You step into the future and it's all little stuff, you know, but it's a driven leadership. And uh, I remember reading, a, I'm not being, being political at all, but uh, I remember working in Singapore, I read an article and it said, uh, was it the Lee Kuan Yew who just died, uh, their leader, uh, said he was worried because Singapore's growth rate was now 15% GDP, 15% growth per year. And unless we hired more of the best and the brightest from the world and lured them to Singapore, you know, we weren't going to be able to sustain that growth rate. I get back to the United States and the headline was exactly, oh, we got to keep these, you know, people out. And uh, yeah, I work right, in a university right. and we we actually spend U.S. taxpayer money educating the world. And then we mm-hmm. move out right after they got their computer science degree. Uh, right. So it's a Instead of starting a company here, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a yeah. completely different uh, philosophy. So mm-hmm. Singapore is, is a, is a continuously improving, innovative, uh, their government, it just values this stuff. And as we said throughout, actually, this is not rocket science. Uh, they, you know, yeah. they've, they've done a good job. Japan. I've spent a lot of time there. My, my, my brother worked there for 12 years. And my dad was a professor at Tokyo university um, you know, the Jap- the Japanese government has, as far as I'm aware, not embraced these. Uh, and this is a fairly recent, maybe I should reiterate, this is a fairly recent movement worldwide. I mean, it's probably six or seven or eight years old. But what the, the, the what's changed is people have discovered what really works. And so that part I see expanding rather quickly. It will, you know, from, from improvement in oriented leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And Singapore, like, for example, the airport, which um, that's got to be public sector, is world renowned as being the best airport, best managed um, oh, organization. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they do all kinds of things that are I mean, they're just stunning. They recycle all their water. They Malaysia tried to uh, cut them off uh, from water. There's always been a sort of, you know, Singapore broke away from Malaysia as independent. And they had a contract on their water, and the previous prime minister of Malaysia said, because um, uh, Singapore has no natural source of water, you know, um, when it expired in 2015, I think it was, this is the story, um, they were going to quadruple the price of water, which would have wrecked Singapore, because it all came over the uh, Johor Straits in a pipe. And so Lee Kuan Yew, with their continuous improvement, uh, he said, we're going to, Singapore has to be 100% self-sufficient water within five years. <laughs> And so now they had the world, the initiative was called IPU, um, literally, uh, meaning that stuff that goes down the drain is, is uh, all recycled. They have recycling plants. They had the, uh, 80% of Singapore's catchment area. So whenever it rains, which it does a lot, they catch it. And um, now Singapore, I was when I was at this factory, Arnold Schwarzenegger was coming the next day with a delegation from California to learn yeah. how you could have it so that anything flushed down your sink or toilet would appear in water. It's the way it happens in nature, you know, um, right afterwards. And the, the upside of the story, the, the end of it is that uh, Singapore, um, once they cut off that pipe, they don't use, they have their own water now. They, uh, Malaysia was trying to set up a big port right near Kuala Lumpur with container shipping. And Singapore uh, bought the two largest shipping companies and uh, that shipped there and uh, diverted all their shipments to other countries as a punishment. For that. But I, I'm not, no political statement there. It's just like five years to self-sufficiency in water and slamming back this country that tried to cut them off. It's yeah. really interesting. But it comes back to strategic goals or strategic imperatives. Right. 
Yeah, and they 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 took that on. So it would be interesting interesting to see with Japan. Um, I'm sure your book will make its way to Japan uh, in English if it's not translated. And look, you know, going back ten years ago, people would have pointed um, people within Japanese healthcare would say back then it was still very rare for a Japanese hospital to be embracing the Toyota production system or lean or whatever we call yes. it. Yes. And that, but that's, that's been picking up. Toyota in Japan is now working with um, at least one hospital nearby them. And mm-hmm. um, you know, they may not be the first mover with certain technologies, if you will, but you know, they'll, they'll catch up and there'll be things to learn from them. Like final, final story I'll, I'll, I'll tell about that is, you know, um, American hospitals from Seattle that would go to Japan to learn from factories because they would say, we want to learn from the best organizations and we don't want people to be just copying what some other hospital did, or that's not the best organizations in Japan. And so then they bring these lessons back to Seattle and you know where Japanese hospitals were going to learn about lean Virginia Mason. Yeah. (laughs) They're flying to Seattle instead of like, you know, cutting out the middle. And interestingly, um, Uh, what's uh, she was also uh, one of the people who endorsed our books. Uh, Wendy Corthur Smith used to head founded and used to head Results Washington. So she moved from government across to healthcare at the highest level. So you know they they sort of certainly respected what she'd done in government. Yeah, and um, you know they they've had a CEO Gary Kaplan, Dr. Kaplan, incredibly supportive of lean and improvement. And as he's retiring, you know he he you know it sounds like you know the 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 intent is that the new CEO is going to continue this forward. So um, I uh, hope that continues to be a good place to go and learn from. So um, Alan, thank you for being, you know, so generous with your time here. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's great talking with you. And um, the book, again, the most recent book, and and again, I can't recommend enough. um, You know, again, going back to uh, the book with um, Mr. Shingo, um, I I lost that, the the, the manufacturing book, improvement book but ideas are f- it was and modern I, approaches I, to manufacturing improvement was that yes yeah. yes thank you for that um ideas are free the idea driven organization um the, you know more recent and and really impactful uh books for me and then again the the new book practical innovation in government how frontline leaders are transforming public sector organizations so um as you're listening to the podcast it's available now you can go Learn more at alanrobinson.com. You can find the book um, anywhere you would find books online, I suppose. So, um, Alan, thank you. Thank you again. And and congratulations to you and Dean uh, on the launch of the book. And uh, I'll look forward to talking to you again someday. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.